It wasn't even playing. So good thing I caught it. Uh, we're going to look at some topics of like the tribulation, whatever. And we're going to look at them in light of the, of the, of the eschatological perspective that I'm, I'm addressing. And what I'm saying is, is that eschatology is not just something future. It is future. I do believe in the return of Christ someday. I do believe the New Jerusalem will come down to earth. Death will be defeated. You know, there'll be a resurrection. All that. Okay. But it's already begun in Jesus. And that you have to read the entire New Testament as though some great eschatological event was happening. When you open Mark 1, you've got to start shouting it. This is incredible. God's returning to his people. We beheld his glory. And now God's glorious presence dwells in us. And so the first question becomes, well, what does that mean for the tribulation? All right. And the first point I would say is that tribulation in the New Testament is a present reality. Okay? Now, in my book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, I have a ch- an entire chapter on the tribulation. So I'm just going to kind of give you an overview today, but if you want more details, uh, you can look at this. But tribulation is a present reality. All right? uh, in fact, tribulation, of course, is a f- key feature of the kingdom of God. Think about it. I just argued, how was the kingdom of God established? And the answer is through Jesus' crucifixion. So why would we think that the kingdom of God is like continues to be established any other way? Right? So let's look at some, some verses. Matthew 24, verse 9. They will deliver you to tribulation. And the Greek word is thalipsis. And they will kill you. And you'll be hated by all and all the nations on account of my name. John 16, 33. In me you may have peace, but in the world you have thalipsis. Take courage. I have overcome the world. In me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but... Ah, don't worry about it. In me, you have peace. Okay? I've overcome the world. Okay? Now, in the book of Acts, the word philipsis occurs basically three, it's four times, but there's one in Acts 7 that's referencing a historical uh, thing. So it occurs three times in the book of Acts in application of the church. And here, and here are the three references. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution, that's the Christians, Acts 11, verse 19, and the word for persecution is philipsis. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, if there's any verse that's got to be the most emphatic one. Tribulations are present reality. How do you know? Because Paul says we have to go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 20.23 The Holy Spirit testifies to me, Paul says, that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions and the word for afflictions is thalipsis await me. So there's your key references for the word thalipsis or tribulation in the book of Acts. Okay? Second point is that tribulation is the present experience of the people of God. Tribulation is the present experience of the people of God. It's not just a present reality. It's a present reality, of course, for the people of God. Okay? And I've got... Um, do I have a slide for that? Okay. Uh, no. Okay, good. All right. Uh, Revelation 7. Verses 14 through 17. This is one of those Revelation passages David said in one of the breaks that uh, if you read Revelation, you're going to worship a whole lot better. Boy, if you memorize these four verses and just dwell on them, look at this passage. Um, the, the, the verse begins by John seeing this great multitude and then, he, and then an angel comes up to John and says, hey, who are these guys? And John's like, I have no idea. You tell me. And, and, and John's told, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits in the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. Note the temple language. And they shall hunger no longer, neither thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. 
because the lamb or for the lamb and the son of the throne will be their shepherd and he shall guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Right? Who are these? These are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. Right? Well, who are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation? Well, whoever they are, they've made their robes white in the blood of the lamb. White robes are, in, in Revelation 19, it says that, that the robes are white symbolizing the righteous acts of the saints. Okay? All right. Now, by the way, note the imagery. They're white because they've been washed in blood. That doesn't make sense if you take it literally. But we all know what it means, don't we? Right? The purity, the sacrificial blood of Christ has cleansed us. Okay? Note the temple language. They serve him day and night in his temple. They're before the throne of God. He who sits in the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Right? Uh, even the very last part says, he'll guide them to the springs of the water of life. The water of life, if we have a chance, we'll look, at, we'll look at the book of Ezekiel there. So, all right, moving forward. All right, now, why does this matter? And the answer is because we must be prepared. The people of God must be prepared for tribulation and suffering. I had a question at the beginning of my notes that I, uh, um, I glossed over, and that's this. What's the best way to win a war? Well, there's a number of really good ways to win a war. But one of the really good ways to win a war is to not let your enemy know that you're even fighting him. Right? If you think about it, if we're in a war but we don't know that we're in a war, then we're not defending ourselves because we don't realize that we're being attacked. And if we don't realize that we're, being, that we're at a war, we're also not being offensive. Right? If I don't realize that I'm in a war, then my enemy can just kind of continue to do whatever he's doing and I'm like ignorant of it. Right? We're going to look at war here in just a few minutes. The war in scripture is the war that the devil wages against God's people. I grew up with this world thinking that, that in the future, uh, and I thought it was in the near future until 19, 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell, right? I was thinking that, that very soon there's going to be this great end times war that will precede the immediate return of Christ. And, and Christ will come back like right after it or three and a half, three and a half all that good stuff, right? right? And in the meantime, we just sat back and read the newspapers because that's what we did back then. Right? Today you watch the news or, you know, an app on BBC app on your phone. What are, and we were looking to see, hey, are there signs of wars and rumors of wars? Are there, are there more? I, but it's a true story. I actually went to the library when I was about 14 years, of, maybe 16 years of age to look up and see if there was an increase in earthquakes in the last 20 or 30 years. I want to see, can I do research to see if the number of earthquakes is increasing? Because that was going to be a sign of Jesus' imminent return. We're sitting back looking for things happening and the devil's waging war against us. So why is it so important to realize that tribulation is a lot of the Christian life? Because the devil's waging war at it, against us. And we need to be engaged. Now, here's one of the things that's this. And that's, a lot of American Christians go, I don't feel like I'm in tribulation. Right? You think, Rob, you, you know, okay, you show me those verses, but you can't be right. The answer is, a, let's look at the history of the church. 2,000 years of history of the church, the church has been in tribulation, hasn't it? B, let's look at the church today, around the world. America is not the only bastion of Christianity. In fact, we're the minority. Sub-Saharan Africa now is the largest contingency of, of Christians in the world. Right? Not America. All right? And I can tell you right now, those 200 and some odd girls from, from uh, Nigeria that have still not been returned, don't tell their parents that tribulation is not the law of the Christian life. Right? All right, or the Christians in Indonesia, the Christians that, that have been suffering under ISIS for all those years, etc., etc., etc. Tribulation is a lot 
uh, of the Christian life. All right, does that make any questions on that? Let's go to the question of the second coming of Jesus. Okay. Now, let me, I, I kind of gave you a, little, a couple ideas that I was thinking of when I was young, but here's one of the questions, and that's this. What are some things that must happen before Jesus returns? Think of Matthew 24, 14. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, okay. The gospel got to all the nations, right? Uh, and, then, and then, of course, the, the, uh, uh, the great abomination that makes desolation takes place right after that, all right? So the gospel going out to all the nations, all right? Anything else? And that's actually really good. Um, it's not actually what Matthew 24 is talking about, but you're actually correct as far as the answer, but we have a chance I'll, I'll, I can address Matthew 24, mm-hmm. all right? So, all right. so I grew up with this idea that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, and all these things. Right? Uh, uh, all had this increase, like birth pangs, that had to happen. And there's going to be this great war that's going to take place, Armageddon, right? That's going to take place over in, over in Israel somewhere. And the nations of the world are going to be allied, allied against Israel. And we're going to have this big, great battle. And, and all those kind of things are going to happen. All right. I have searched the New Testament. Right? And I believe there are three things the New Testament says must take place before Jesus returns. And then remember, when we're done, we're going to ask, why does this matter? Right? All right. Number one, the conversion of the nations. 2 Peter 3.9. Remember, it's a love story. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why has Jesus not returned? Because not everyone who's going to repent has repented. Right? Oh Lord, please come. Oh Lord, please come. Maranatha, as Paul ends the book of Corinthians, right? Oh Lord, please come. Well, if God would have answered Paul's question correctly, or or God would have answered Paul, hey, oh no, no problem, I'll come, we would not have an opportunity for eternal life because we would never have been born. Now, you could kind of make that go for infinity if you want, because, you know, but it, it appears. That God seems to say, no, I wanted Rob and, you know, and, and Stephen to, to know Jesus, so I'm not coming back yet. All right? The conversion of the nations. All right? It's a love story. All right? Why has God not come back yet? Because he loves you. And he loves that person over there and he wants, uh, wants them to know Jesus. Acts 3, 19-21 said the same thing. All right? And I put the word so that, in order that, and that in, in bold here uh, as best as it shows up on the, on the uh, screen. Repent therefore and return so that your sins may be wiped away. In order that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven may receive until the period of restoration of all things about which, that, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient time. Note there are three things here. If you repent, so that your sins may be wiped away. Right? And so that is a, like a purpose clause, right? This is the purpose, or it could be a result clause, which are kind of overlapping there. Uh, repent, so that your sins can be wiped away. Right? Note the next one. In order that the times of refreshing may come. Now, some translations may not say in order that, but it should. Okay? Um, New American uh, simply does. In order that the time of refreshing may come. What's the time of refreshing? Well, we could probably say it's the New Jerusalem. We'll just kind of keep it simple. It's, it's the New Jerusalem. And that, and the word that there is, and in order that he may send Jesus. Notice the sending of Jesus is tied to their repentance. Repent so that your sins can be wiped away, and so that the time of refreshing may come, and so that he may send Jesus. Jesus the, Peter was clear he understood that Jesus' coming back was tied to the repentance of the nations. Okay? 
Alright, the second one. The completion of the suffering of God's people. This goes back to why I think tribulation is so important or so significant in the New Testament. Um, Revelation 6, verse 10. There's, a, there's, a, there's some souls underneath the altar. Okay? And they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while uh, longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Now this goes back to what I said earlier, and that's this. You see, point one and point two go together. The suffering of, of God's people is the means by which the nations repent. So if Jesus' is coming back is contingent upon the nations repenting, and the suffering of God's people is the way in which the people repent, then you see how there's a love story going on. As God's people suffer, the nations repent, and both of those are necessary for the, re- for, for the return of Jesus. I'm not coming back, he tells these, these souls, until the number of their fellow servants who are to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. All right, thirdly, okay, and that is the holiness of God's people. See, it comes back to what we said at the beginning. The holiness, of, this verse is really incredible. Watch it carefully. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, right? And that would be the, the, the things that are evil, the destined to perish part of it, right? And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's judgment, refining. Right? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And here's your answer. In holy conduct and godliness. Now look at the next line. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by, by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Hastening means to speed up. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? If we live holy lives, God's coming happens faster. Yes? Sorry. We can slow it down also then. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Right? Why? Because the coming of Christ is contingent upon the repentance of the nations. If we're not out there being a, a light under the world, the nations aren't coming to Christ, thereby slowing down the return of Christ. And if we're not suffering for, God's pe- for, for the sake of the kingdom, nations aren't repenting, and if they're not repenting, Christ ain't coming. So holy conduct here, if we combine that with Revelation and elsewhere, it would be this righteous persevering, I I put it the way, the loving, sacrificial, persevering witness of God's people will hasten the return of Jesus. Right? Interesting, isn't it? Those are the only three things I can find in the entire New Testament that give you any indication that are are linked with the coming of Jesus. Okay? Now, you go, well, what about Matthew 13, I'm sorry, Mark 13, Matthew 24, etc.? I don't think that's what that, those chapters are about. Uh, I, I think Matthew 24, primarily, and I have a chapter in my book, um, Understanding the, the New Testament and the End Times, on Mark 13. Um, and he's describing the destruction of Jerusalem. Right? When, he, he says, look at all these stones. He says, not one stone be left upon another. They're all going to come down. All right? Why? Because the temple was not fulfilling its purpose. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, and it's not. And now, I'm the temple of God, Therefore, 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen, as a, as a chick, as a, a chick, hen gets to her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. That's the last two, several verses of Matthew 23. Matthew 24, the disciples say, well, Lord, when's this going to happen? And he says, well, look, life's going to go on as normal, as they were referring to the Matthew 26 passage, or 20, 20, and 24 passage earlier. Now, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes and pestilence. And, you know, you're going to be persecuted, but that's not the end. And then you're going to hear people say, look, there's the Christ. Don't believe him. And the gospel will go to the whole world, which will be the Roman world. And he, also, he goes on to say, it's going to happen in a generation. Right? I believe the death of Jesus was AD 30, which most, I think majority of scholars probably say 30, some say 33. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70, exactly 40 years later. So, although the Matthew 20, you know, the passage you quoted, Sarah, is, is applicable in, in the sense that Christ will not return until the nations are converted, that's not what Matthew 24 is getting at. He's saying that the gospel is going to go to the whole Roman world and then Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Right? And that's why he says, and when you see that happening, he says, then get out of town. Pray that it won't happen on the Sabbath. Pray that you're not, you know, it's not going to happen in the winter. Well, you know, pray that you're not nursing. Right? Those are all first century cultural contexts because we wouldn't care if it was a Sabbath day. We'd still flee. Right? You know, so it has this first century context. Yes? Go ahead. For me, it's hard to understand and grasp the, the, con like the concept of we have the ability to slow down his second coming. Yeah, yeah, but interesting. Yet God knowing. Right. How, I, knowing when, you know, it's. Yeah, okay. So there's this transcendence of God part, right? Where yeah. God's outside of time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he knows the day of his return, but that's his but transcendence. Then, but then within space and time, he also knows that because of this and this and this, it's going to be later or it's going to be sooner. Yeah. All right. So if, we, if, if I can recap a little bit, and then we'll go to a couple more topics, and then and Armageddon, I think, is next. All right. um, and that's, that's this, this eschatological worldview that begins with the coming of Jesus in Mark 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of God's kingdom breaking into the world. What's the essence of God's kingdom breaking into the world? God's presence among us. Right? All right. That comes with Jesus. Right? Now, with Jesus, we're beholding his glory. But God's presence is still, refined, is still limited to one place. Jesus is by, wherever Jesus is. So, that, so we know the fulfillment's going to be bigger than that. And then the Spirit comes and now indwells us. Right? And now God's presence begins to expand to more people and to more places as the church grows throughout the nations. God's presence is, is taking over the world. Right? Now, in the meantime... Right. So, so that means that God's people need to be holy, and we see holiness tied to the return of Jesus, because we are the temple presence of God. God's people are on a mission to make God known to the nations. But in doing so, we live in this already not yet world, where we're members of God's kingdom, where he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And if Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, that means Caesar is not. But we live in a world where Caesar says, pay your taxes. And where Caesar says, if you don't burn incense before me, I'm going to chop your head off. And we say, so be it. I'll pay my taxes. But I'm not saying Caesar is Lord because Jesus... That, we, we live in this already not yet time where I have to follow the rules of the state and of the, of the nations, etc. But I'm, I'm, my allegiance is to the one King of Kings and the one Lord of Lords. And I'm going to make him known. Now, the nations might persecute you because you don't uh, give allegiance to Caesar. But so be it. It just causes the church to grow. Okay. And so, and, and the kingdom of God flourishes not by power or by domination, 
right? Now, not by ruthlessness, not by lying, or, or, but by service. Now, when we serve in love and humility, it makes it easy to step on us. It's easy to take advantage of Christians because I'm just going to slap you and they're not going to slap me back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat them and they're not going to cheat me back. Right? Now, we might go through Justice Avenue. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're going to be like rag dolls to just toss, toss around. But, but we're going to exemplify love and mercy and grace. And this is how God's kingdom is built. Okay? You see, I believe in the book of Revelation that the key chapter is chapter 11. The two witnesses are killed. And everyone rejoices because the two witnesses are killed. They even send gifts to one another because the two witnesses are killed. And then what happens to the two witnesses? They resurrect in full view of men. And the people who see the two witnesses rise from the dead repent. They gave glory to the God of heaven. And then the seventh trumpet sounds, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Lord has become, and the kingdom of the Lord has become the kingdom of, of the Lord's. That's the end. Okay. So how, how, did, how do the nations repent? Because of God's people dying for them. So it's this great eschatological story that, that's going on there. Now, in the middle of that story then, all right, one of the key elements here, another layer, is the fact that Jerusalem and the Jews who have the allegiance to honor and self-esteem and, and prestige and they've stepped on the poor and they've stepped on the blind and they've stepped on the weak and they've, they, 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 don't, they don't love the Samaritans and they, they hate the Gentiles. And Jesus says, look, you need to repent too. Remember John the Baptist says, don't say to, to, to me that we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. Your Jewishness is no longer simply good enough. You need to repent also. So entrance into the kingdom of God is through repentance. All right? Now remember, you know, for God so loved the world that he came, he, God gave his only begotten son. All right? And he did not come into the world to condemn the world. That's verse 17, John 3, verse 17. But if you don't accept him, condemnation is what happens. And so that's why that you have the Matthew 13, Mark 13, Matthew 24, describing this judgment upon Jerusalem. Does that make sense? All right. So one more key topic, and then we'll take some questions and, and, and more topics there. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause this now. And